0: I've got um, something very important to discuss with you, Jan. What do you do when you meet a lion?
1: A lion?
0: A lion. Have you got any idea what oh. how one should respond?
1: I would say run. But then again, oh, no, they, no, 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 no. No,
0: no. You're going to have to read this book to find out what you do when you meet a lion. That's because... Uh, and, and my guest today knows, because he, as an aid worker, travelled the world and came across such things. His book is entitled, appropriately enough, Beyond the Vapour Trail. And the name of this author is Brett Pierce. So, Brett, welcome to 3CR. Yeah, thank you, David. Now, look, we need to set the background a little. Your role as an aid
2: worker, it from the book, it's both extraordinary as well as daunting. It, it is a little bit. You know, um, there's a mythical aid worker out there that people have in their heads. In, in fact, it's a, it's a very broad kind of area to work in. Um, mine has been um, an interesting journey that's it's taken to me over, to, to over 70 countries. So um, both sometimes very close to communities and sometimes stepping back a bit and taking a broader view.
0: But there's a particular focus with your aid work, isn't there?
2: Yeah, you know, if you want to become a global expert in something, pick something no one else wants. And uh, that's pretty much what I ended up in. Um, I've had a, have a particular focus on child sponsorship. And uh, because, you know, many, many agencies walked away from it and thought, oh, we don't know how to make this work in communities. I discovered as I began to look at it very much from a community perspective that by changing it, by reinventing it in a community context, it can actually be more powerful than if we don't have it there, um, which might sound odd, but we, we lose some of those things that trouble people like the individualization of the child, the, the paternalism, those kinds of things, and turn it into an opportunity for a way of bringing the whole community together to focus on children.
0: Well, children really are the core, the future of any Society or community,
2: really? Well, and and in fact, we would also say they're the present because they're currently experiencing it. And so what they have to say about their experience shapes that reality very powerfully.
0: Well, now I'm going to read a little excerpt to give the listener an idea of the sort of things you're facing. And this is quite minimal, but um, it'll go on and you can explain some of the contingencies associated with it. Um, You're visiting Western Equatoria. It's like a boy's own adventure. A couple of days later, we drove northwest along the border with the Central African Republic to explore more of the vast territory where we planned to work. I teamed up with Samar, a program officer from Lebanon I had met years before. The landscape was vast and imposing. A group of us drove for hours along the orange-red roads that ran through chokingly thick forest. I looked, as it looked, as though there were psychotic plants tangled in there tangled in there trying to pull the trees down to strangle them with only the strongest trees bursting their heads through to breathe the roads were fringed with grasses serious grass up to two or three meters high swarms of butterflies created movement and bright green lizards darted across the road sitting up on two feet as they went as if they had sticks up their bums hours down the track we spotted a school and decided to stop About 30 children were sitting quietly on logs under trees in the middle of nowhere with their teacher. The teacher was welcoming. The children looked up at us, an inexplicable arrival of people in the middle of their lesson. I later learnt that there are 52 schools in this district, but only two of them had classrooms. Just in case you think it sounds like a nature-filled idyll, as a former teacher, I can assure you that the concentration levels of children sitting outside are low. Try it. Sit yourself on a cut branch for a few hours and try to work. Oh, did I mention it rains for a minimum of six months each year? So we've got the landscape, we've got uh, the sort of situations um, we find these children in, but it then develops beyond there, because what are the other sort of concerns we have where these children coming to this school are concerned?
2: Yeah, you know, um, in in one of the schools uh, nearby that actually had classrooms, we've got the children out and and began to to group them in t- terms of how long does it take you to 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 come to school. So some of them are walking each way more than two hours, sometimes up to three hours each way. But there's a problem also,
0: not just the distance, but what's then some of the challenge? What are some of the challenges they face in this
2: walk? Um, yeah, generally they like to have the children in groups because abduction of children in South Sudan is uh, relatively common. You may never see them again.
0: And so we've got things like. Rape and all these other sorts of things and the abuse of children that, that occur as well. You then, of course, if the children are grouped together, maybe an older child, it takes them away from the fields
2: as well. Yeah, the kind of choices we don't have to face is um, the the choice: do I send my child to school, or 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 do we have sufficient for the for the for the next meal through this hungry period? Um, so, you know. Often the value of education, some of them have it and some some parents don't, but it's always far more complicated up close than it sounds from a distance. Well, this is
0: it. We, in our cosy little uh, living rooms, think, great, you know, we can send some money for aid work, but we don't understand the ripple effect and all the other situations involved in providing that aid. Yes,
2: yeah, cer- certainly, you know... Um, Development is a constant learning process where the unintended outcomes have have to be identified. And so if we're not in a conversation as part of that process, um, what appears to be be working may not. I remember a story in Niger where it it was a simple tree planting project. X number of trees... And um, by the indicators, the right number of trees planted, good survival rate within budget, pretty much on time, successful project until you begin to listen to a community who are upset because a few of the chiefs had commandeered this resource as their own personal resource and they felt very disenfranchised. So hearing that. In, in evaluation then changes the way you approach it next time around. Hmm. And also then, I mean, in this classroom situation,
0: who provides the classrooms? Is it the government's responsibility, the community's responsibility? And all of these sorts of cultural factors start to impinge on what's taking place.
2: Yeah, so so my work typically is not the emergency relief It's um, of, of people... Who have been pushed out of their natural environment? It's the developments, the long-term process of poverty that quietly eats away at people's livelihoods and well-being. And um, but where we're in a transition, like a place like South Sudan, um, a few years back in Mozambique or Angola, from from relief in South Sudan, they've had generations who have just experienced relief and they have lost their normal way of life and so their expectation that someone else will come and do these things created some interesting conversations and and in exploring in south sudan it was one of the conversations we had to have in terms of understanding i remember saying to them actually you know i noticed uh, that you're very good at building buildings here and i also noticed there were some children um, down the road they have no classrooms why don't you Build some classrooms, and this was met with a general silence. And one person said, "Oh, they might burn down," which, um, by that logic, we wouldn't build any buildings. Um, it really took a little bit to begin to to hear the answers. That's the government's role. Oh, but you've got a you've got a very new government, and they've got so many priorities and so few few um, resources. Um, this was. This was just completely ignored as a suggestion. It didn't make any sense to them. It's the government's role. Yeah. So passivity is something that you have to tackle head on. You, you have to be able to work out where is the starting point when when you have these attitudes of, of passivity because otherwise they'll sit back and expect us and to be service to providers. Happen.
0: I mean, there's an absurd situation. Here's another absurd situation. Uh, Jan, do you like your coffee? I do like my coffee. Well, here we go. Desperate for caffeine, I discovered instead a Yambio explanation of why they don't have coffee. They have an espresso machine, they have beans, but they don't have the teeth on the coffee grinder and they're waiting for them to arrive. When? Sometime soon. Oh. So we've got absurdity
2: taking place in all of these situations as well. Yeah, the, the, the complexity of some of these places. Now, I don't want anyone to think that South Sudan is typical of development work. You know, the, the tenacity, um, the, the local brilliance of most of the people you work with, and even people in South Sudan, at times astounds you and inspires you. So I just want to balance that. But but in, in going into a place and looking at bringing long-term development, we had to look at things like logistics. Can we run the project? Can we run it efficiently? What's it going to cost us in order to do this? If... Um, uh, is there you know, population mobility, and there's so, there's so many factors you have to take into account, including um, at the time when I was doing this, would will the vice president, um, is that situation stable, or is there likely to be conflict? Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of assessing that. We're also assessing whether the Lord's Resistance Army would continue raiding, even though we saw African Union UN troops around the place. Mm-hmm. Would they keep raiding? On both of those, we were inclined to think we were safe. Within two and a half weeks of us leaving, the LRA raided a community I was in. Mm. And within three and a half weeks, the Civil War broke out. So they helped our assessment. (laughs) But um, unfortunately, you know, the the tragedy that's ensued is... It's tragedy,
0: the precarious situations that you face. But there's also another undercurrent in this book, in, in this memoir, and it's a sort of the personal revelations that you make. And you mention your struggle with depression. Fifteen years of chronic depression had carried with it an unconscious sense of falling. And I'm just wondering if there is a correlation between the aid work you're doing and this sense of depression. One would have thought the um, the absurdities and the almost insurmountable problems would have added to the depression. On the other hand, the sort of joy of uh, the relief provided and the help given would uh, perhaps elevate you. I mean, is there a correlation between <clears throat> these elements?
2: I, I don't think there's a correlation in the sense that it, I don't think uh, what I saw at any point worsened my depression. The depression was, was whatever was going on inside me. I've been out of it now for, for about eight to nine years after 15 years of chronic depression I consider myself very fortunate um, in some ways the interaction that I had um, in, in communities um, the, 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 the closeness of both joy and sorrow somehow ha- has a sense of being alive that I wasn't experiencing in Melbourne and it's part of the reflection that I think I bring to the book I thought, how can I relook at my the routine that sings me to sleep in a place like Melbourne, and and actually find that same sense of being alive in the middle of my life? How do I break that routine? Um, so so in some ways it was it was it was helpful, and I I don't think it ever I, I ever felt um, worsened by it. Mm. Um, so the depression itself was more inside me. Um,
0: ...than associated with the situation. Correct. Yeah. yeah. There's another, uh, not necessarily an undercurrent, but there are emails to your long-suffering wife, Kathleen, um, and given the life and death situations you were often facing, I mean, what it must have meant for family back home.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting when you're doing all the travelling and someone else has to carry everything, It's um, it's um, it's not a lot of fun for them in a sense. And when you occasionally send the email that says, oh, I think we'll be evacuated tomorrow, the, the Lord's Resistance Army is this many kilometres away, um, you sort of sometimes <laughs> wonder how that's, how that's being, being read.
0: Well, I mean, the book virtually opens with a a life and death situation. The question in the back of your mind, it might look something like this. The image of a gun being pointed at you. How long would it take to breathe your next breath? How would you respond to a person holding your life in their hands? There are places where, for a brief time, things fall apart and we see what people are capable of when the rules no longer seem to matter. You're going into very precarious situations where you are... Facing life and death moments, mm. um, how does an aid worker who is trying to do good uh, sort of face those situations
2: which could be, for want of a better word, described as evil? Yeah, you know, just just to to balance the picture, those moments are rare. Um, most of the time, it's just it's just business as usual, like you are in any job. But um, yeah, generally, I've I've found. I'm not sure that my response to these situations is normal. Um, I, I found myself in situations where I should have been completely terrified, and I thought, I think maybe, um, I, but based on everyone around me, we, I should be terrified right now. But um, I, you managed so to survive. Managed to survive. But
0: there's also a lot of good that comes out. I mean, uh, Betty Alarjo, uh a girl you sponsor, uh, and her. Voice forms a bit of a narrative at the early stages of the book and your royalties are going for towards the, someone you met as a child who's now a woman.
2: Yeah yeah yep she, she was she was twelve it was in the middle of a Lord's Resistance Army uh, raid. Um, I, I met her and um, so yeah her, her story is actually she's one of my heroes. she's the most quietly spoken young lady. One but of the survivors. One of the survivors.
0: And and this is what you hope for in, in trying to sponsor and provide for the children. Look, there are a lot of mm. other little stories. Have I got time just to read something, Jan? Because you need to are you know. you going to tell
1: me about the lion? Huh? I am. This is oh, what you wow. need
0: to find out now because it's essential um, for everyone. Um, and uh, all I need to do is find the right spot. When you meet a lion, you must know what to do. One of the men shared with me, the nature of the lion is proud and courageous. So if you see a lion, you should look her in the eye. Then you should back away quite quickly to show you mean her no harm. Do not show her the back of your neck or she will kill you. As he spoke, what struck me was that the nature of the Masai was the same, proud and courageous, just as they described the lions. They always meet your eyes. They never seem to bow their head to another. They raise their head to acknowledge another person, maintaining eye contact. They continued to give me survival tips, and I continued to plan to avoid the need for them. (laughs) But if you meet a leopard, you must know what to do. If you see a leopard, do not look at her or she may attack. The nature of the leopard is afraid. She will hide in the tree and does not want to be discovered. So back away quite quickly to show you mean no harm. But do not show her the back of your neck or she may kill you. But I will leave you, Jan, to find out what you must do if you meet a cheetah or a hyena. So readers can go into the book to find that out. The book is Beyond the Vapour Trail by Brett Pierce, an aid worker who's gone into over 70 different countries, and the book is from Transit Lounge.
1: Thank you, Brett. Thank you, David. I'm speaking with Kath Crowley. Last week, I went to a funeral where a sister spoke about her brother, their shared hopes, their mateship and her loss. I had tears and a few more with Kath Crowley's book, Words in deep blue. Welcome back, Kath, and uh, thanks for the extra soggy hankies in my house. <laughs> That's a pleasure. <laughs> well, you've got a character, Rachel. She's just returned to the city. Now, what's she telling of what's she telling her friends?
3: Well, she's she's telling her friends that she's having a gap year, and that she's just come back to the city to save some money before she goes. Well, but actually, before she goes to university. Um, so she's not. Tell- I guess it's easier for me to remember what she's not telling them. Sorry, what, what's
1: she not? Telling so she's them?
3: not telling them that uh, her brother Cal has has drowned. Um, so she's come to the city to get away yeah. from that. Just so that she doesn't have to face the teachers because she, she just failed Year 12? She failed Year 12. She hasn't been able to concentrate. She doesn't think she's lost her dreams. She wanted to study the ocean, to be a marine biologist. And she just needs to get away from everyone asking her questions and just to see if she can have a bit of a breathing space in the city. So let's... Take it back,
1: three years prior, before she went away. She'd hoped to spend her last night in the big city with her best friend. (laughs) That was Henry
3: Jones. But who had he chosen to spend the night with? Well, he had chosen to spend the night with Amy. So they had just read... um The Last Night of the World by Ray Bradbury and they decided that they should have a last night, everyone in their school. And so Rachel was really hoping to spend it with Henry because they're best friends but she's also got a big crush on him.
1: And she'd written Henry a letter before she left and she'd posted it in an intriguing spot. Now, the letter library, I'm going to get Kath Crowley to read from page 37 about the letter library.
3: So it's up the back, near the stairs to our flat, separate from the rest of the shelves. And in it, we keep copies of books that people particularly love. Fiction, non-fiction, romance and sci-fi, poetry and atlases and cookbooks. Customers are allowed to write in the books in the letter library. They can circle words that they love, highlight lines. They can leave notes in the margins, leave thoughts about the meanings of things. We've had to get multiple copies of works like Tom Stoppard and John Green, because Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and the Fault in Our Stars are crammed with notes from readers.
1: I'd never heard of this. I think it's such a great idea, the letter library. So, Kath Crowley, was it your
3: idea? Well, I think so. I mean, I I had the idea of... It it kind of evolved the way, you know, ideas do, coming from different directions, but I wanted them to leave notes in, in books. And I'd gone in to talk to the woman in Alice's bookshop in Rathdown Street Um, And she had gotten really excited because she found lots of things in books and lots of notes, but we couldn't quite work out how would it work logistically to have two people reading the notes from each other in books. And so along the way I started to think, well, I'll need, Something and then I thought, well, it, it could be just an actual library that's there all the time. And so then the, then the letter library arrived in my head. But I love the idea of it. So, so do I. Yeah. So
1: do I. Whenever I lend out books, I always ask people to write something do you? in them. Oh, oh
3: absolutely. Wow. Yeah.
1: absolutely. Write them, you know, something in them and then give them back to me. <laughs>
3: yeah. Well, I've got a friend who writes in the back of her, so she always writes her notes about the book in the back. So when you read the book, you feel like you're having a conversation with her.
1: Oh, let's bring on more of yes. this. Thank you. Okay, well, look, I think we should hear the little note that uh, Rachel wrote for Henry. Only a small one.
3: So she left it in Proofrock and Other Observations by T.S. Eliot and she left the letter between pages four and five. Dear Henry, I'm leaving this letter on the same page as the love song of J. Alfred Proofrock because you love the poem and I love you. I know you're out with Amy, but she doesn't love you, Henry. She loves herself quite a bit, in fact. I love that you read, I love that you love secondhand books, I love pretty much everything about you. And I've known you for ten years, so that's saying something. I leave tomorrow. Please call me when you get this, no matter how late, Rachel.
1: Well, we found out that he never called.
3: He never called. So she went away for it for I think it was
1: three. Three years, three years. Thank and,
3: you. and he was really grief
1: stricken because she never really wrote back to him, so um, there's this best friendship that's hanging in the balance. Hanging in the mm-hmm. balance. Now this brings us into the letter library. Of course, is up the stairs
3: near our flat. Who owns the book sh- The
1: secondhand bookshop.
3: So Henry and his family own the bookshop. So the the Joneses, and they all all there. There are two children, Henry and George, and and their parents, and they all kind of have a stake in it. Um, So they have a say about what happens to the bookshop. Henry's
1: sister, George, now what's she? She's a a gothic freak.
3: (laughs) She is. She's gorgeous. I love her. She's
1: been having correspondence through the letter library for over
3: two years. She has. So she's an absolute cynic. She loves reading. And so someone's written to her in the letter library and, and unbeknownst to anyone in her family, she's been writing back.
1: Two years and then the correspondence stops. Oh, and uh, it's all linked by a North Pacific giant octopus. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if, there's a quote in the book. Second-hand books are full of mysteries, which is why I like them. So I, I have this whole feeling about the second-hand bookshop that you're rather attached to them too.
3: I am. I love – Yeah, I do love second-hand books. I mean, my dad – I mean, he loved all books, but he, he particularly loved second-hand books.
1: You get this whole feel with this one and in if you've been into a second-hand bookshop a good one you get all the little niches and where people can sit and this is what happens in this bookshop but what's about what what's what's going to happen to it
3: uh, well Henry's mum has decided with oh. you know with the rest of the family that it, it's, it's not making sell. a whole lot of money yet. so and it's going
1: it's to a sell lot of, that's what happens with a lot of these properties i have got yeah. to say um, I love the way that Henry's family comes together for dinner and it turns into a book discussion.
3: I do love their family. Yeah, so they communicate through books. And I think uh, since I since writing this, a lot of people have emailed me and told me that that's the way that they communicate with their parents or their siblings or they have conversations through the books they love or about the books they love.
1: So what you're also writing here is a bit of a book list for readers, oh, no, aren't I, you?
3: I am. My <laughs> own book list. <laughs> The half title
1: of the book is Sometimes You Need the Poets. And, of course, you've talked about T.S. Eliot, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Poet, the poets, what do they give to us? What, why, does, why does Rachel need them?
3: Well, I think she, I mean, I, I can only speak for myself and, and Rachel, but I think sometimes, I mean, I remember, um, you know, reading particular lines from particular books at particular times and they just gave me a new way of seeing or some sort of hope that things would get better and even if I knew things would not stay wouldn't necessarily get better quickly they give you they give you a sense of beauty in a world that that might not always be beautiful they're a way of coping I think And
1: this is what Rachel really needs. She needs an outlet for her grief.
3: She does. And I think she needs to know that other people feel the same way that she does. And so not only do the poets feel the way that she does, the people who've underlined those words feel the same way that she does. So they connect us through time as well.
1: Mm. What you've written, I I liked a lot of your characters, Kath. I I thought that they weren't they weren't sort of superhuman they had their foibles like henry henry can't get his mind away from amy you know that she's just using
3: him <laughs> no poor henry yeah.
1: <laughs> he's blinded to her charms and she's not a very nice woman really she was she was rachel's best friend and decided to you know move in on 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 rachel's love <laughs> yes no she's yeah she's not a very conniving nervous. shall we say and uh, martin Oh, Martin the geek! I tell you, he he's he's
3: he was unusual family. <laughs> I well, yeah. I mean, I think le- less unusual now. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I Martin's lovely. Like he's got you know he he quite, I like the way he slowly starts to stand up to George the mm. way through the book.
1: And Lola, the girl who wrote songs and played bass. If she liked a girl, she asked her out the same day. Now Lola and her girlfriend were perhaps a little bit
3: more than that, but they
1: you just wrote them as they
3: were. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Lola and Hiroka are they're, they're minor characters, so they're just hanging around on the fringes. Although I think I'll use them at some other time, but I don't think that they, I don't think that they're they're having a romance. Except they're having that lovely romance that happens between two people when they write together. Mm. So it's not necessarily, a, they're not in love, but they're both in love with music. And I think that deep connection is really important. So there mm. are all different types of love in the world. And I like that that runs through Words in Deep Blue, that love of words, the love of poetry, love of music.
1: Frederick, his lost love. Now he was their their first customer at the bookshop twenty years ago, and he was only fifty and very sad. But uh, now he's seventy, and he's he's looking for the, a copy of a book that he gave away. So it it's it sort of
3: it's has got this hunt through the um the book the book sale trade. Yes, and look, I've heard I mean recently of someone who found a book that they were looking for. They were in Australia. I don't know if you read it, but the book turned up in. London or t- turned oh. up in England. So it does happen, although poor Frederick doesn't necessarily find what he's looking for, but he's searching for the Walcott, Derek Walcott, a particular copy that his wife read to him and he read to her from.
1: Well, Kath Crowley's book, Words in Deep Blue, is, well, it's a YA book, but it's got universal appeal. Thank you. It's also got sex. <laughs> A little right at the end, a little bit, yes. <laughs> gentle writing about losing virginity, mm-hmm. yes, and and uh, and I, uh, and and some humour, some humour that I think uh, young kids would have. This is a quote: "How do you feel like I've just had every single one of my organs harvested while I'm still alive?" <laughs> Good one. You said about quotes um, and it it linking life and death, life is the big scheme. Death is the little one at the end. Uh, Kath Crowley has given us a book about love between people, but also love of books. And her book is Words in a Deep Blue by Pam McMillan. Oh, thank you so much, Kath.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Jan. Thank you, Jen. Oh, well, thank you, David. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.